Okay, guys, let's go back to Ephesians 5. Um, a couple things that, that, that I hope will happen today. Um, I hope that all of us uh, experience repentance, especially in this next section as we talk about who we are as uh, in the role of husband in Christ. I hope that we'll be very mindful of the change that Jesus wants to bring to our life. I, I even hope that um, this is the one time it's totally okay for you during our message to text your wife if you want to text her and tell your lover, if you want to say, baby, hold tonight. We need to talk. We need to go out and work some things out. Uh, I want you to do that. If you need to get up right now and go as we're talking and just go go make some things right and then come back, then that's perfectly okay. Uh, I want to speak to you guys too as single guys. I know we have quite a few single guys and... Uh, the Bible actually holds you in high esteem, and you are loved, and you are important to us, and um, I want to be sure that you're included as we talk about this. So we want, we want to all experience repentance together. I want every single guy in the room today to really uh, be changed and, and, and broken, but that brokenness not to leave you in a, in a bad place, but to, 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 to draw attention again to just how deeply Jesus loves you, how capable he is and willing he is to change you. Uh, but some of you guys, and I've already talked to maybe some of you today, uh, you're going you're gonna to have something unique happen throughout the course of today. As, as we're participating in something that's bigger than any one of our churches, there is a movement underfoot where Jesus is calling out men to not only take uh, initiative in their homes, but in their churches, and maybe for some of you even to be sent out as church planters into the mission field. I want you to just be aware of that, that that very well could happen through the rest of our time together today. I want to celebrate that with you. Here's another category of guys I want, to, I want to highlight. Maybe as we talk today, you're going to come to the stark reality that you don't know Jesus. I've just been being religious, and I want to know Jesus. Um, I'm going to ask, as we're going to break for lunch, not yet, in a little bit, as we break for lunch... Um, <laughs> Could I, could I have maybe a, a volunteer set of guys to come up front here who would be willing to go to lunch with one of, one of the guys who doesn't know Jesus? So if you don't know Jesus, and that's becoming more apparent to you as the time uh, unfolds, if you're here with your dad, talk to your dad first. But if you came kind of unattached and there's no buddy you have here um, and you want to talk with somebody, we ask maybe if we can have some volunteers up front who'd be willing to say, I want to include someone in my group today as we go to lunch together who doesn't know Jesus and, and just go over the gospel with them. So again, pray about that. Pray about some of you just being up front here afterwards and pray about, um, and I pray for you guys that you just have courage. Those of you who don't, who don't know Jesus, that you would be willing to say, I need help. Um, some of us really are at a critical point in our marriages today if we were just totally candid. And if you've come and you're thinking even remotely, I need help, you need help. You really do. And so we're gonna have a panel of two very helpful guys I don't know if I'm on that panel or not, Lois. I'm probably not the most helpful, but uh, I know I know uh, Tim and Daniel are going to be up here. They're very uh, God has used them fruitfully in biblical counseling. That's why we're together, guys. We're a band of brothers, fighting for each other's marriages, fighting for each other's relationship with Jesus as a community project, and we go to war with each other day in and day out. So I want you to know you're not alone, but don't let this opportunity pass. Don't let this opportunity pass. Take advantage of today and. Let someone know you need help. I just need help, and, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, here's, here's kind of my story when it comes to these types of gatherings. 
as we talk about marriage. Um, by and large, in my life, they've been, uh, they've been uh, real flame-out experiences. Like, I go, I get challenged, I get inspired, I go home, and nothing changes. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember the Promise Keepers movement. I went to two Promise Keepers events, uh, one at the old Mile High Stadium in Denver, and one time we gathered on the mall in Washington. And I remember walking away from those events, like, pumped up. I'm going to be super husband. I'm going to be great dad. Uh, in very practical ways, I'm going to do date night, and I'm going to do the dishes. You know, So each event, that's for whatever reason, dishes in my, <laughs> dishes in my sanctification are intertwined, all right? I can't explain it. So I remember both times coming home and, and for like three days doing the dishes until both, this happened both times. This can't be recorded online, all right? Both times my wife makes this Alfredo sauce that's just like glue. And so comes time to do the dishes, and I'm like, all right, Jesus, I'm out, you know. My role is to provide for this home and work and, you know, let someone else handle the Alfredo sauce. So um, here's why. Here's why I think, uh, why I didn't experience transformation. Ultimately, it's my fault. But I didn't make the biblical connection that it's out of our identity. Out of our identity comes activity. So if we first don't know who we are in Christ, None of the imperatives of the Bible, do this, do that, makes sense. If we don't know first who we are and who Jesus is for us, then it doesn't matter. So I was taking the imperatives of I should be a better husband by doing date night and doing dirty dishes. And I was disconnecting that thought from who I was in Christ. And the end result was very short-term transformation. I want to make sure that we get that first today. I want you to know who you are in Christ. And I want you to, to then understand what it means to love your wives as Christ loved the church, to love your wives as Jesus who loves his own body does. I want you to understand who Jesus is first before we even tackle and who you are in him and the difference that his finished work and his uh, inclusion of you in his body makes. Otherwise, we're going to be right back at that same place. You're going to go home this evening and you're going to do well for a few days. Some of you guys are just so good at willpower. You know, you're the guys who stayed on the body for life or body for life. You're the fit guys, you know. Not many of you today, as I can tell, but anyway, just kidding. Um, you're, you're the guys who just, by willpower, you know, you just do things. But most of us um, aren't going to be changed that way. And so I want you to see who you are. So before we jump into Ephesians 5, let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Here, here's the problem in our culture, especially among guys what we do typically defines who we are, right? You're, 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 you're playing golf uh, on a sun, uh, Sunday, hopefully not, on a Saturday. Play golf on Sunday. I don't mean it's against the Sabbath, but go to worship first. Um, some of you are going to be mad at me for saying that. Anyway, um, let's say it's Saturday, which it is. Uh, play golf on Saturday. You show up. You're, you're, the, you're the last guy in the force. And what do the guys ask you? What do you do? You're a pastor. Oh, you know, we're sorry. You know, we're sorry for all the curse words we said in the first nine holes. And I said, I'm sorry for mine too. You know, and we go from there. Um, <laughs> Really, we live in a culture that, that what you, oh, you're an attorney, wow, you know, or worse, I feel bad for you guys who are physicians. I mean, you just deal with, you know, you're a cardiologist and someone's telling you about their prostate gland being swollen for nine holes, you know, and it's like, oh, can I just get away from work on the golf course? But we live in that type of a culture. What you do really defines who you are. Biblically, it's the other way around. Who you are ultimately defines what you do. So we understand that we're first in Christ. We're forgiven. Our sin, he's taken upon himself. We're righteous in him. 
in his full righteousness and his obedience has been credited to our account by the grace of God and by faith. We appropriate that day in and day out. And out of that relationship really determines what we do. If you miss those, uh, if you mix those up today, today's going to be disastrous for you. So let's get that right. Ephesians 2. Here's the beautiful aspect of identity. Ephesians 2, we're going to start in verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. That's where we're going. Here's the story of God's love for us. And you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, that's who we are by birth. That's who we are. We're dead, and we're children of wrath, and what we do flows out of who we are. Okay? You need to understand what it means when we say you're a sinner. Sin, sinning isn't really what you do. It's who you are. You're sinful. The natural man, apart from the invading grace of God, is dead, which means these things happen. You sin. You sin continuously. You have no affection or impulse towards God. You're dead. You're absolutely dead. You're under God's wrath. And out of your identity flows your activity. I want you to see that connection. Look at the transformation that happens, though. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who is the initiator and the author of salvation? God is. What did you bring into this relationship? Death. Okay. Sin. God entirely acts. If you don't understand that, it's going to complicate you growing in Christ. So if we teach that, eh, it's his partnership, God does his part, you do your part, that's the essence of salvation, you're going to forever live in your sin. It's just, just the way it is. It's a bad biblical teaching. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you see the transformation that's happened in identities? You were dead, but God in his grace made you alive. Okay, he made you alive. He is the, he is the actor, the author, the initiator of our salvation. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, which is salvation by faith. Both of those things are gifts of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's, here's the good news. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, of which being the husband, God wants you to be to your wife as a part of, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see that? Do you see your identity now? You were dead in sin, but God in his mercy and his grace and his kindness has made you alive in Christ, and it's a package deal. Not only your justification, but he declared righteous, but also his outworking of your sanctification that he prepared in eternity past, just like he determined that you would be saved. You're gonna do good things. And so what we're going to see unfolding in this passage, in Ephesians 5, when we talk about what does it mean to be a husband, is that it's, it's our identity in Christ, that we're, we were dead, 
Now we're alive. When we're dead, we're condemned to being self-centered, boorish husbands. But now that we're alive in Christ, God has ordained in eternity past that we would walk in obedience to his word, not so that he will love us, but because he already has, that radically changes how, how our marriages will look. Does that make sense to you? If, you? if you don't understand that, we need to go over that. Because if you don't get that, you're going to go home tonight and you're going to try really hard to do more to be a better husband and it's not going to work. Why? Because you, 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 you don't understand the connection between identity and activity. Out of your new identity in Christ will come this transformed husband that your wife will receive and love and follow. Okay? If, you don't, if, you don't, if you don't get those things down, then all we're going to do is we're going to come up with more rules. And more rules won't change you because the issue is your heart. It's not what you do. Out of your heart is what you do. Jesus made that clear. Out of the word come the hearts. So what we need is a changed heart. What we need to do is really understand our identity. And then out of our identity flows our activity as husbands. Make sense? All right, let's get into the nitty gritties. Uh, Back to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25. Two imperatives here. We're to love our wives in verse 25. And uh, as Christ loved the church. And then also we're going to see in verse 28... Uh, we should love our wives as our own body in the same way, just as Jesus loves the church. Now, sounds good. We need, we need some definition, and we're going to get that. So, Ephesians 5.25, here we go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Big picture. That's what Jesus is doing, right? That's what he's doing in salvation. He gave himself up, our perfect blood sacrifice, so that he who knew no sin might become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, That's the transaction that transpired by God's grace through the cross. God, God has breathed life into us. He's given us the gift of response that we might turn from our sin and trust in him, which we call faith. Okay? And we're progressively, we're progressively being made like Jesus. Now, now here's the connection we want to make. Then we're to be, we're to be that guy to our wife. Who's that guy? We're to be that guy. We're to be who Jesus is to his church. So there's several, several things we need to hone in on. What does it mean that he gave himself up for her? And what does it mean that he, he grows her towards Sanctification. Let me, show you, let me show you a passage that I think is perhaps the most clarifying thing because that can mean all kinds of things to guys. That means I'm going to die tonight by watching New Jersey Housewives with my wife so that she feels comforted. I don't think it means exactly that. Look at John 10. Here's similar language that Jesus uses that will define who you are to be to your wife. John 10, look if you will at verses 10 and 11. We're real familiar with 10. Okay. Here's the image of Jesus laying down his life for his church, for his people that we get all the time. John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's an interesting concept. Same idea, different imagery. But, but it's this concept that Jesus is the good shepherd. That's when we talk about the headship of Jesus. He is the senior pastor of all of our churches. No one else should have that title. If you use that, that's okay. I'm not going to be legalistic about that. But ultimately, he's the head of the church. 
we're, uh, those of us who are, who are ordained in pastoral ministry, who wear the title pastor, we're under shepherds. Um, First Peter makes that clear. We're under shepherds, but Jesus is the chief shepherd. And so we're beginning to get a picture of, of how Jesus sees himself giving himself up for the, the benefit of his sheep. He refers to the concept of shepherd. That's a good term because that's also the term that we get pastor from. All right? So, so here's the simplest way, I think, to, to break this down. What does it mean to love our, our wives like Jesus loved the church? He gave himself up that the church might become progressively more like him, that the church might grow to become spotless and blameless. We would say that's the pastoral role of Jesus, or maybe even the priestly role of Jesus. That's what Jesus has done as our senior pastor. So guys, what Jesus is calling you to be out of who he is in your life, he's calling you to pastor your wife. That's exactly who you are. You're to pastor her in a way that you give yourself up for her, you sacrifice yourself for her, so that she may grow much like the church, more and more like Jesus. And specifically in the same context, the idea of washing her with a word. Being her pastor who, through the gospel of Jesus, loves her, serves her, sacrifices himself for her, so that she might grow in him. Hope you get that. That's huge. Who's your wife's pastor? You are. You are. Jesus has given you, your lovely bride, that you might shepherd her, that you might pastor her. The question that remains then is, are you doing it? Are you pastoring your wife or are you abdicating your role and letting somebody else do it? Biggest issue and the most heartache in my ministry as a pastor that I ever came to face-to-face was I was doing it wrong. Here was my concept. I came out of a larger church. A larger church planted us in the heart of Albuquerque. And uh, a lot of times when you come out of a larger church, you, you become anti-large church and how you do church. Like, I'm not going to do it that way because um, I don't want to do it that way. And then you later learn, oh, there was a good reason they did things that way. And so one of the things I decided I was going to do unlike um, the church that sent me out, and especially the lead role, was I was going to be more available to the people, right? You hear that all the time. Uh, we just want a pastor who we can touch and talk to and, and call over when we have a hangnail. And, and I'm just kidding. Uh, boy, there's bitterness there, wasn't there? We'll have to repent of that later. Um, but, but this idea that, that you know, I'm just going to be available to the people. Here's, here's the huge mistake I made. Huge mistake. I superseded in the small group of people I was leading, the, the, the husband's role to pastor his wife, and I pastored everybody. I just bypassed the pastor that God had already ordained and put in the home, i.e. the dad and the husband, and I went right to pastoring everybody. And what that ended up looking like practically is most of my weeks I had 12 to 15 one-on-one scattered throughout the week where, where I would get together and I would meet with the men and I would kind of just disciple them, encourage them, um, but it was more about my pastoral role. And then I would perform pastoral responsibilities for everybody. And the pattern I saw was guys who were frustrated with me and whose wives were frustrated with them. And they would constantly tell their husband, why can't you be more like Pastor Dave? Now, how, guys, you, you may have heard that before from your wife, whether it's Pastor Ryan or Pastor Michael. Um, I got to be honest with you, that's probably not a big incentive for you to come back to church. Yeah, I, honey, I want to go back and let you spend more time with that pastor so that you can beat me over the head when we go home that I might be more like him, right? 
It's a terrible way to do church. I was confronted with Acts 29. And one of the, one of the key concepts of Acts 29 is that, that, that men, uh, men lead in the home and men lead in the church. And we do ministry that way, which means if my role is ultimately to equip and release pastors in every home, then ministry is going to look very different from me taking pastoral responsibility over every issue that comes up in a home, right? So what I began to do is I began to look through the lens of the scripture and I began to raise up pastors. Uh, everywhere I went, that was it. I'm going to raise up pastors. That's all I want to do. I want, I, want, I want to give the women in the church the best deal and the best deal that the women in the church can have is the pastor in their own home. And so as I began to raise up pastors, I radically saw lives transformed. And we began to gain not only breadth, but depth. People began to change, right? Men, are you pastoring your wives? Are you pastoring your wife? It's a beautiful role God has given you to pastor your wife, to love her, to serve her, to lead her in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, day in and day out, so that she might be transformed, so that she might grow with you as you together grow in your transformation to be people who think, feel, speak, and act like Jesus. Are you doing that? If you're not, that's a sad thing. How, how many of you, I want, you I, want, I want it to sink in today just how tragic that is. How many of you would say, honey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be your husband in every way but not sexually. I'm, I'm going to find somebody better, uh, somebody who's professional to come in and he'll take care of that role and he'll do that role and then, and then you know, then I'll, when, when things are finished and good and then I'll come back in. Um, nobody in the right mind would do that. Maybe someone who's really struggling and in a bad place might consider that. But that's exactly what you guys do in the pastoral role. Let's go find the church with the best speaking pastor. And honey, I'm going to take you, and my job will be the chauffeur. I'm going to show up. And then when you're, when you're angry, when you're confronted, when you have questions, you go talk to him. You work things out with him. You counsel with him. And I'm going to totally abdicate my pastoral role in the home, and I'm going to give it to another man. I've come to the point in my ministry where if you come to me and do that, I won't, I won't do it. Nope, not going to do it. You can find plenty of churches here in town that will, but that won't be my role with you. I want to pour myself out into you that you might be the pastor your wife desires because she desires you to be her pastor. Not only that, you're the best pastor that will ever step foot in your home. Guys come to me all the time. Heartbroken. Oh, I, I get it. I'm not leading my wife. And usually what happens, it happens as we begin to look at leaders. Because if you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and those who are qualified to lead as elders in the church, that's the first place we look. Is this guy an elder, a pastor in his own home? Because if not, why in the world, if he's not caring for his smallest flock, would we entrust the larger flock of God to him? First thing we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to pastor our wives. And that flows out of our identity. Why? Because we have the chief shepherd. We're, we're in an intimate relationship, a dynamic relationship, an instructional relationship, a transformational relationship with a chief pastor. So everyone, every guy in this room that knows Jesus has that, and out of that relationship flows you pastoring your wife. Are you pastoring 
your wife this morning. If not, I want you to repent today. We're going to talk about what repentance looks like in a minute. What breaks my heart in in Albuquerque is, um, in pastoral ministry, is just seeing the broken lives that come from, from fatherlessness. Many of you men in this room could raise your hand and say, yeah, I, that's, where I, that's where I come from. Again, statistically speaking, half, more than half of the guys in this room probably don't have a dad in their life. And to just see the devastation. If I were to go to uh, the mayor this morning, and I've done this with previous city leaders, and say, what could, what could Morris Hill Albuquerque do? What could Desert Springs do? What could Trinity in the Marketplace do? What could Calvary of Albuquerque do? What could the church do to help and serve the city? They'll begin to say things like, man, we have a gang problem here. Yeah, you think? We have a drug problem here. I see that. We have a, a cyclical poverty problem here. Yep, see that. Then I'll press on them and say, why do you think that is? Every single one of them, and these aren't guys who, who love the Bible. These aren't guys who follow Jesus necessarily will say, because our city has a history of men behaving badly. That's the hist- you want to understand the history of Albuquerque? There's your subtitle, men behaving badly, right? Getting gals pregnant, not being dads, perpetuating cyclical poverty. It happens. They would tell you that's it. Some of you guys in the Christian community are doing the same thing in your home spiritually. You've absolutely abdicated your role as pastor to your wife and to your kids. And I can't be the surrogate. And Ryan can't be the surrogate. And and the elders can't be the surrogate. Michael can't be the surrogate. You're the man. You're the man. And Jesus is sufficient. And there are guys in this room who've made that transition that I've watched go from being the guy who sits on the couch all day to the guy who picks up the Bible, loves his wife, leads his children, and he's here to help you today. Because sometimes things aren't just taught. They're caught, right? There are men in this room who will help you. Are you pastoring your wife? Are you pastoring your kids? Now, single guys, listen to me. How do you practice? How do you practice? Practice conditions are best when we put you in situations that your mistakes don't kill us, all right? You know, we, we, start, with, we start with blanks and we move to live ammunition. Um, so, so let me give you a couple of suggestions. Serve, guys. Single guys, serve. Serve maybe one level down be below where you are. So if you're a college-age dude, serve the youth. If you're a youth-age guy, and we've got um, three of our guys here today. I saw Christopher and Anthony and Jacob. You know what they do? They serve our kids. They serve our little kids. You, you, can, you, can, you can pastor and shepherd and learn to spiritually. You don't have to stand up in front of people and talk. You, you have to let Jesus transform your life through the gospel and then share with others. Guys, begin there. Look, guys that are 20 and 30 and 40 that are single, look around for single women in the body, that not in a creepy way, not in a stalker way, but in, in a kind, loving, faithful, godly way. You can encourage spiritually. That's okay. That's cool. They, they want you to do that. They're looking for that. So, pastor, now again, out of your identity flows your activity. And, and Jesus is sufficient and his word is good. And the Holy Spirit is an ever-present help to help you do this. Maybe some of us need to repent this morning. Two other things. Look down at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Remember how we talked about Jesus' love for us is ultimately a love for himself too? 
And that's a wonderful thing. The Bible just assumes that's where we're coming from. For no one ever hated his own flesh, that means your own physical body, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Two words there. First word is nourish. Literally means to feed. Not only are you the pastor that God has given his daughter whom he loves and whom Jesus died for, you're to be her feeder or her provider. If you're going to be a husband, you have to provide for your wife. That's who God ordained you to be. That's who Jesus is transforming you to be. That's whom the Holy Spirit is sufficient for you to be. Now I want you to think of provision in three categories. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. Let's start with the most basic way. Guys, listen to me. You need to be the primary provider for your home financially. You just need to be. You just need to be. Let me show you how important this is. Flip over to 1 Timothy 5.8. It's going to be a little bit uh, to your right there. This is how critical this was in the early church, and it must have been a huge problem. 1 Timothy 5.8. This is in the context of giving instruction to widows. Think about an, a younger mortality rate in, in, the, in the first century. Uh, people died. Oftentimes, as men died, their, 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 their widow was left alone, and she needed to be supported. So Paul is giving Timothy instruction on how to handle benevolence in the church. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide, what's the context? Financial material provision. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. That's powerful. I love what uh, Darren Patrick said in the video. Here's what happens. Did you catch the generational drift? Uh, Older men, they don't invest in the next generation down. Those then middle-aged men tend to not know what to do with younger men. And what happens is when younger men don't have older men, specifically father-type figures, pouring into them, helping them understand what it means to act out their manhood through their identity in Christ, guess what happens? They perpetuate, they perpetuate a juvenile state. Here's what I see happening all the time, men. And, and some of you in this room, we've talked about this personally. And everybody in this room I've watched that I've talked to about this personally, I've watched you really be transformed. So one, I love you. I appreciate the transformation. And I'm not talking about you now. So don't email me, all right? I'm not talking about you. are doing well. Those of you I don't know, I can't say. Here's what happens. We start out at a young age. We get done with high school. And we don't start thinking about the rest of our lives. Most of you here in the room who are 50, 60, older, uh, when you turn 18, you got the loving boot of your father. And you either went to college or you went into the military or you went into some form of trade or apprentice school. And that was a good thing to do because your father knew that someday you were going to get married and that you would be the provider for your home like he was for his and that you needed to start at that age pursuing a skill that would allow you to make enough money so that you could provide for your family, okay? Now, enter in the 60s and the whole Spock generation and this whole idea of let's just nurture guys. All of a sudden, is, is again, Darren Patrick said, you've got 30%, 30% now, nationally speaking, of 20 to 30-year-old men living with mom, 
okay? First of all, guys, if you haven't figured out yet, ladies don't find that very sexy, okay? If your invitation to marry is to come live with mom and dad, I'm going to say you're going to get a no, all right? That's just not a very sexy proposal for a woman. But, but that's ridiculous. You, you should, when you graduate from high school, you should begin your career path. Why? Because, because we want you to be materialistic and we want you to make a lot of money because it's a consumer difference? No, because we want you to love the women in our lives. And I, having four daughters, want to know that I'm not going to have to pay for them forever. I want to know that they're going to marry a man who says, I've thought this thing out and out of love and out of sacrifice and out of the sheer faith and hope that one day God would bring me a woman. When she comes into my life, I want to provide for her. Then it changes your trajectory. It changes your trajectory. One of the issues we faced, and we've talked about it openly, and again, some guys have made some very exciting transitions. We have got, at least at Morris Hill Church, 30-year-old guys working jobs that 16-year-old kids should work and making that level of money. And if you haven't figured it out yet, you can't make that level of money and provide for your wife and your kids. You just can't do it. And so the propensity is when we call you out on this to get your feelings hurt, wow, you don't really love me like my mom did. No, no, we actually love you more. We love you more than your mom to tell you this is not a cool thing you're doing. This is ultimately intrinsically selfish. You are just playing, and we want you to, even if you're 50 years old, start a new career path today, build up a skill set, be committed to work, so that you might, in essence, pastor your wife and provide for her financially. Just talk to Mark Driscoll the other day. We are on the phone, and he said, this is... This is uh, this is interesting. For those of you that are at other than churches in Mars, so you can laugh at us and then you can help us. Uh, he said, Dave, you guys need to do better in your giving. He says, as a campus, you rate right now just a little bit above the campus that we planted at the University of Washington, which is exclusively college students. And I was trying to explain to him the, the, the economic disparities between Albuquerque and Seattle. Seattle, you know, per capita income is about 50%. He said, I know, but we're talking about 18 to 22-year-olds who live with mom and dad and work at the 7-Eleven. Okay, that's what we're talking about. He said, here's the bigger issue. He said, this is a generational man problem. He said, what you really need to do to get ahead of the curve, instead of just talking about giving and budgets, you need to start telling young men, be serious about your future. Not so that you'll get rich, but so that you will have enough so that you can love somebody so that you can express the provision of God. And the Bible takes it so seriously. It says, if you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. You've, in essence, denied the faith. Maybe, guys, some of us need to talk today about career paths. I've seen guys let ministry get in the way of that. Oh, I want to be a vocational pastor. (laughs) You, You are, okay? You've got your little flock. Pastor them first. Go get a job. Do that first. So we're to provide financially. We're to provide emotionally. It's the last time you provided for you. When was the last time you encouraged your wife? It's the last time you did that. Here's the funny thing about women. If you don't provide here, they'll find it somewhere else. They really will. Now, maybe among their friends, if you're lucky, and if you're unlucky, it'll be with another guy in the office. Um, if you haven't noticed this, and again, I've got four daughters at home and one lovely wife, um, women have more emotional needs than we do. We need to provide. How do we provide? We, we love. We encourage. We nourish. How, how about spiritually? How about spiritually? Are you providing? Guys, are you providing for your wife spiritually? 
here's, here's, the, here's the aha moment I had in my marriage. Um, it had to do with Saturday. Saturday's my one day off. And so Saturdays, I typically looked at it. Okay, everybody be quiet. Daddy needs to sleep a little bit more. And it needs to be a good restful day for Daddy. And all of a sudden, I looked up one day and realized, wow, Kara doesn't ever get a day off, ever. You know, every day is the same. And they're all from 6 in the morning till 10 at night. And she's, she's not only burnt out physically, she's burnt out spiritually. Now, now, my wife is one of these gals who just, she's the Mary and the Mary and Martha story. She just loves to sit at the feet of Jesus, and she'll spend all day there, you know, really, because she never gets tired of his presence, and I can learn from that. So here's what I devised. I, I suddenly realized that, that Saturdays, um, what I really needed, I needed to be with my kids. The rest of the week was crazy. I needed to be with my kids. They would get up early in the morning. Uh, they would make noise around the house. So it really wasn't a good thing for me to be in bed while they were running around. It was better that I get up. So I got up. And Saturday mornings became daddy mornings. So we would get up and we'd go eat something really healthy like Dunkin' Donuts and bacon and, and, and um, chocolate milk. My kids love, uh, they love chocolate milk with chocolate donuts. That is just so unhealthy, but we'd go for it. And then we would go, uh, we'd buy the zoo pass. So we'd be down at the Albuquerque Zoo, which is a great deal. And we'd be there till, till noon, you know. And, and the deal with Kara was, honey, we'll be back home at, at, at lunch and then together we'll have a family lunch. You do whatever you want in the morning. You do whatever you want. And, and if you want to you um, sleep, you sleep. Uh, here's what she would do, though. The second we left, the second we leave the house, she'd get out of bed. And she'd go up to her kind of private meeting place with the Lord. And she would spend all morning there just worshiping and studying her Bible and jotting down notes. And I would come home to just a radically transformed woman. And it just set the day off in the right trajectory. And so that's one practical way that I could just provide for her spiritually to say, let me take the kids because they're killing you and, and I need them. Let me take them and you just spend this time with Jesus. And she was being nourished. She needs that weekly. She needs that connection point with Jesus where she can just linger for an indefinite period of time to, to reset her heart so that she can just thrive the rest of the week. And it was my great joy to provide for her that way. And that's what I began to find. At that, at, that, at that convergence of her need and my provision, I got the joy that I was looking for in Jesus, and so did she. Guys, are you providing? You're providing for your wife. Look at the next phrase. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it Second word is cherishes it. That's an interesting concept. First Thessalonians 2.7, don't necessarily go there. Um, Paul uses the same word when he talks about being among the church at Thessalonica. And he, he talks about his role in being gentle with them, like being a nursing mother who cares for her children. That's what that word means. It is the image of a nursing mom who protects the baby, gives the baby a warm gentle, safe place to be so that the baby may grow. So not only to pastor our wives, not only to provide for our wives, we're to protect them. We're to protect them. And I want you again to think in those three categories. We're to protect them physically. We're to protect them emotionally. We're to protect them spiritually. And some of you guys this morning are putting your wives at risk in all three categories. Instead of being the man who's like Jesus, who protects and he nourishes and he cares and he disciplines his church so that his sheep are safe and cared for, you're exposing them to harm through your own selfishness. 
talk about physically. Some of you guys right now are making decisions financially that are putting your wives at risk. You're chasing dreams. You're pursuing electronics and leisure in ways that you're accumulating debt that puts your wife at risk. It's a great conversation I got to have with with Kara this spring as she has worked since our kids have grown up and gone to school. She's worked in a school setting. And I said, honey, you're tired, and, and I don't want you to work anymore. And I know we'll have to cut back, and I know we'll have to find other ways around it, but I'm not protecting you very well because you're tired and you're... Your fatigue, you're, you're frustrated with the kids, and I just need you to let go of some things. Absolutely. I, I may be old school, but I am dismayed by how many of you put your wives in precarious positions physically. You know this city. I don't have to tell you bad things happen everywhere, yet some of you don't take care of your, your wives at night. Let them drive anywhere, let them go anywhere. Here's a funny phone call I got. 2007, Good Friday, woke up in the early hours of Good Friday morning, and both of my cars were set on fire in my front yard. Someone had rolled up, um, like, the rags you get at gas stations, stuck them in. They were both SUVs, large ones, stuck them into the gas tank, lit them on fire, and then took off. And some guy, I think he was an angel, driving a Dolly Madison bread truck, probably on his way to the 7-Eleven, stopped and knocked on my door, and I walked out, and the cars were in flames, and the fire department came. And um, guys came out, and they put the fire out. They told me not to touch anything, and police came. Uh, They don't really investigate a situation like that unless somebody dies or there's like a million dollars worth of property damage. You know, that's good to know. Uh, We're not going to investigate that, but they did say, we think it's probably, this was really encouraging. We think it's somebody from your church who did this. Great. And so, thanks. Probably, probably one of your elders. Uh, so, thank you. And so, um, began to, to wrestle. Got a phone call from Pastor Mark Driscoll, good friend. Called me up and, and walked me through. Man, I'm so sorry this happened to you. He sent my kids candy. He sent my wife flowers just to say, I'm really sorry. This is a traumatic experience. The police really said, you're so, you're so fortunate. That usually, and both of them had full tanks, but usually those become fire bombs. And your whole house could have gone up and you could have been dead. Somebody wanted to kill you. They didn't want to just play a joke. And so, um, so I'm talking with Pastor Mark, and his closing statement is this. Now, Dave, I just want you to know, if you cannot protect your wife and your kids, you can't pastor your church. Love you, bro. Bye. Click. <laughs> Thanks, Pastor Mark. <laughs> I was doing a noble thing, right? I, w- I, was living, I was living just right off the war zone there at Lomas in Louisiana, trying to be contextual, live in a neighborhood so, so that I could be relevant, so that I could be connected to people there. And I understand the risks that people take on mission with Jesus day in and day out. But the Bible also says this, I need to protect my wife. I need to protect her physically. I need to protect my kids' well-being. And so we moved. We had no other option. We just moved. We're going to not tell everybody where we live anymore, and we're going to move into a different place. Now, there's no place to save. I understand that. But some of you are so idealistic and so focused on this nostalgic concept of what it means to be radical for Jesus, you bring people into your home and you put your wife into dangerous predicaments you have no business doing, and you ultimately aren't loving her like Jesus loves his church. Are you protecting your wife emotionally? Every guy has a wife who has that one friend that's just no good. You know what I mean? Now, hopefully that's not my wife. But anyway, you got that friend that just tears your wife up emotionally. 
And at some point, especially if you're in church work, there'll be that one person that just sucks the life out of it, out of her, you know, and takes advantage of her. At some point, you have to stop, step up and say, enough! Honey, I love you. This relationship has to stop. There are no boundaries here. This person is hurting you emotionally, devastating you emotionally. Heaven forbid, and this happens often, that that relationship comes from her family of origin. Have any of you guys fought that battle before? Where you have to say to your mother-in-law, where you have to say to your father-in-law, where you have to say to your brother-in-law, where you have to say to your sister-in-law, enough! You are done with this relationship, and until you change, you cannot step back in. And my wife may not have the... The, the, the strength to tell you that, but I do, and God has put me in her life to protect her. Stop already. Have you done that? It's not a respectful thing to allow your mother-in-law and your father-in-law to trample your wife. That is not a respectful thing. It's not a loving thing. It's not what the Bible ever intended when it says to honor your father and your mother. But what about Spiritually. What does your wife read? What does she study? Who does she listen to? There's some goofy stuff out there, guys. And a lot of it falls within the general umbrella of women's ministry. You know what I mean? Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever listened to those conversations? Wow, really? Someone said that? That's crazy. You need to protect her. I, I was struck by this in my own life uh, recently. We've got, uh, moving to this new neighborhood, we really missed the kind of, old neighborhood. Michael was one of the neighbors. Maybe Michael set my cars on fire. Pastor Michael was a neighbor. Yeah, strangely, he took a couple weeks vacation after that. I'm putting it together now. Um, it, was a, it was a very middle-class neighborhood, and we miss those folks in a lot of ways. We wish they wouldn't set our cars on fire, but we love them. They were real. We moved into a little bit more of an upscale neighborhood and uh, filled with retirees, and man, people are uptight. Listen to me, men that are headed towards retirement. If you don't build your life around Christ, you are going to become my crazy neighbor who lives to pull weeds out of the street with tweezers. And that is a miserable existence. There's no wonder your children and grandchildren ever visit because you're a bitter old man, all right? So don't head down that path. Don't head down that path. And at least put a sign out in the neighborhood when people are looking to buy homes like, I am going to be your worst nightmare ever so that I can negotiate a better price because it's worth a lot to me. We've got, we've got a neighbor behind us that, that freaks out anytime a dog barks and he feels no limits whatsoever to come and ring my doorbell and to scream at me and care. Then I got another neighbor, and I love these guys both, I really do, and they need to know Jesus. It's clear they don't know Jesus, who has this weird deal about the night skies. And so he has sent me literature on the Night Skies Protection Act for New Mexico that if I have any light on, he's going to come hard after me. Now, there's nothing to enforce it, and a lot of it's just, it's not even enforceable. It's not even the city, you know, call the police who are chasing down um, drug cartels, killing each other, and say, my neighbor's lights are too bright. Yeah, see how quickly they're going to come up. So it's, it's perfect for a mediation situation. Anyway, um, so if I turn on a light, and I've told him, I said, I hear, I, I want you to enjoy the nights, guys. I think that's great, but I'm going to protect my family. And I've got four daughters who come home at times late in the night, and I want them to be able to see their way in the house, you know. He said, well, what are you going to do, walk, drive around with a shotgun all your life and protect him? And I said, I very well may be doing that right now. And you may be the first, <laughs> and you may be the first guy I kill, you know. <laughs> you want to do this thing here? You know, take your chances. Uh, so anyway, he gets up early, early in the morning. And, 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 and we have a, my life is a wreck. We have a Pomeranian, my, 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 my second oldest daughter babysat all last summer and convinced us 
that it was time for her to have responsibility that she would buy the dog, and she researched it, and I, we didn't pay attention to her research. She came to the conclusion that the most laid-back, easygoing dog for family is a Pomeranian. No. <laughs> most of you guys know that because you just know stuff, and I don't. Um, anyway, so this Pomeranian gets up early, so, you know, I'm catching a little bit more sleep. I'm getting ready. I have Kara walk the Pomeranian out. As she walks the Pomeranian out, often she encounters the angry light neighbor, and it's, and it's early morning, and he's probably angry because the sun is coming up and has issues with, <laughs> issues with what God is doing. And so he just, he lays into my wife, curses at her, screams at her. Um, and I was struck by, I'm not protecting her here. So we had words, and we're good now. Um, but I said, no more. You don't ever talk to my wife like that. You, you talk to me, and if you have an issue, then let's talk, and we'll work it out. But I don't ever want you to talk to my wife like that again. Why? Because that's the role Jesus has given me. That's the love Jesus has for his church. That's why Jesus disciplines members who go astray in the church. That's why Jesus says, there will be wolves that come into my church. Kill them! You know, kill them. I don't think we should burn people at the stake, but who knows? But, you know, we don't, we don't do that anymore. But that's how serious he takes this issue. Some of you are not protecting your wife. Some of you are not providing for your families. Some of you are not pastoring your wife and your kids. Some of you younger guys, single guys, you're not beginning to do the things you need to do so that those things will be in place when God and his grace gives you the girl of his dreams, and I believe he will. You're not preparing right. And quite frankly, I hope you're heartbroken. Because the Bible refers to these women as sisters. And Jesus loves them every bit as much as he loves you. And some of you are their worst nightmares. But this morning, he's ready and willing and able to change you. And what's really going on here is a worship issue. That somewhere in your relationship with your wife, somewhere on your journey, you chose to worship something other than someone other than Jesus. Which means underneath that worship issue is a gospel issue. At the heart of your sin, you're denying all that God says about himself, that he's good, that he'll provide for you, that he'll protect you, that he'll empower you to make the transformation you need to make to be the man Jesus wants you to be in your home. So we're going to repent. What is repentance? Let me give you the most helpful thing I've found and we'll be done. We'll get our... Guys up on stage here real quick. Read Dead Guys. I know Ryan tells you that. I know Michael tells you that. One dead guy you should read is a guy named Thomas Watson, great Puritan thinker. He defines true repentance with six concepts. So let's go over them real quick. If you want to jot these down, you can. Number one, he talks about true repentance being sight of sin. Sight of sin. And notice, one of the things Jesus does in us and through us, through his word and through the Holy Spirit, is all of a sudden he opens our eyes. You know how often the Bible talks about, oh, my eyes were open, right? And it's not just good old-fashioned gospel hymns that talk about that. That's a reality. You're going to experience, perhaps even this morning, your eyes are open to who you are. One of the most powerful transformations I ever saw was with a good buddy I had named Charles. Charles was a guy who worked hard and he played hard, but that left little time for his wife and his kids. He was the kind of guy you really wanted as your friend because he knew the best places to get a steak and the best deals on golf clubs, and he just played all the time. One day he was taking a nap on his couch. This is literally what happened. He was sleeping on his couch, and he had some sort of dream 
that I believe was God-ordained, that was spirit-saturated, and he saw himself for who he was. It was like he had an out-of-body experience. He saw his lazy bones on the couch, and he saw his wife crying in the kitchen trying to take care of all the stuff he was neglecting. And it was the beginning point of his life radically. He's one of the best husbands and dads now, a guy that was just, just, just worthless, a slob, transformed quickly. The first step of repentance is really you get it. You, you all of a sudden are going to feel a heavy heart this morning. I am sinning against my bride. I am sinning against my future wife. Now, you can't say that if you're married now. If you're a single guy, I'm sinning against my future wife by not preparing for her, not anticipating her. Here I am to have the gall to ask Jesus to bring a woman into my life that I can love, and I'm not even preparing like he's going to do it. I'm just jacking around here. And all of a sudden, I see how sinful I am. Number two, sorrow for sin. There's a sorrow for sin. Wow. I get the gravity and the weightiness and the heaviness of what I'm doing. Third thing, confession of sin. Be specific, okay? That's what Watson really talks about in his treatise on the subject. Be specific. It's not like, "Uh, honey, I've not been as good as husband as I could be. It's, honey, we need to talk. There's a gal in the office that I have affection for that I've been flirting with. Her name is this. And I just want you to know, I am sorry. Two guys in this room this morning, two guys that I love, and I'm just watching their lives be radically transformed, who had to tell their wife in the past month to six weeks that there was a pattern of adultery, that they had physically, sexually been unfaithful to their wives. And they told details, and they told them, and their wives have responded in grace, and God has been working powerful in their lives, and I'm watching them now have huge impact on other guys. Confession of sin. Fourth, shame for sin. There is such thing as good, godly sorrow and shame. Now, understand, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is a sense of shame. There is a sense of embarrassment. If you hold the name of Jesus in esteem at all, if you live for his preeminence, there are times where you blow it so bad in such a public way, or there's times in which you so misrepresent him to your family and your kids, you have to say, I'm ashamed of what I did. This is an embarrassing day. And I have true, authentic, God-given shame. When was the last time you were ashamed of sin in front of your wife, in front of your kids, in front of your bros in the church? Five, hatred for sin. Hatred for sin. I hate that. I have a godly indignation and hatred for my sin. I hate the fact that I don't pastor my wife. I hate the fact that I don't protect my wife. I hate the fact that I don't provide for my family. I hate the fact that I've justified myself in staying in that place. And six and lastly, turning from sin. Turning from sin, that's repentance. Turning back to Jesus. Turning to your identity again. All right, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm freed. The righteousness of Jesus is mine. And now I'm free to go forward. We're going to have a panel of guys come up now. We want you to be able... Am I right, Lois? you want to introduce the panel? What's that? Oh, we're going to take a 10-minute break. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me bring one thing as, as we take a break. Because we want you guys to ask practical questions. I hope we all experience repentance today. And I hope that... 
24 hours don't pass before we go to our wife and seek her forgiveness. To our, um, if we're not married, to our brothers around us and say, help me change, I'm sorry. Maybe single guys have been inappropriate towards single women to those and seek their forgiveness. And to invite other men to speak into our lives and we're totally transparent and and clear with them. Because here's what I want you to see. All of the Christian life is one of repentance. That's what Luther said, right? When he nailed the theses on the door. It's always that. That's how we grow. This is how we grow, men. It's not by doing more and trying harder. It's turning from sin and trusting Jesus. Let me pray real quick. And then, and then, Lord, I know there are men that are hurting right now, that are overcome with condemnation. I know there are those who are merely feigning worldly sorrow only because they're regretting the hard conversations that need to transpire, but they're in no way heartbroken. I'm saying, Lord, I know there are men even now that are self-justifying not being a pastor. Lord, I, I know there are men that are justifying, well, I don't provide for my wife because of this, that, and the other. I don't protect my wife. Lord, oh, I pray you'd penetrate that heart. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in each heart, that we would turn from sin, that we would trust in Jesus. I pray for this panel that's going to answer questions, that we would deal with really good questions, sincere questions. I especially pray for that man who needs to raise his hand today among his brothers and say, I need help. All this I ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.